Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 14, is where we are. We are going to finish our time in John, chapter 14, this morning. We have been in the Upper Room Discourse now for a couple months. This is an amazing discourse, five full chapters on one amazing night We've seen the care that Jesus has for his disciples. Even in these moments, he says, I see trouble on your faces. I see that you are in pain, that you don't have peace, and I want to give you peace. I want to care for you. That's why he says in verse 27, I'm leaving peace with you, and I'm I'm pleading with you. I'm commanding you, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be fearful. That's really what this whole chapter has been about. That's an inclusio. Verse 27 is the book, the end of the bookmark to um, what happens at the very beginning, the opening, the, the bookend at the front end of this chapter in verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. This whole section is about peace and joy and faith. Last week we looked at peace specifically. We just looked at verse 27 and we saw the nature of the peace that Jesus gives. We saw the source of the peace. It's Jesus himself. We saw the contrast of that peace that this is peace unlike anything that the world could possibly give. And then we saw the pursuit. It is a command. We need to appropriate the promises that God has given to us to live out that peace and to live in that peace. So I want to finish this section out this morning and just ask that God would show us the foundation that we have in Him for all of our joy, all of our peace, and all of our faith, both now and forever. Let's start in verse 25, and we'll read these remaining verses in chapter 14. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So do not let your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away. And I will come to you. If you loved me. You would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now, I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you. For the ruler of the world is coming. But he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's go from here. Father, these words are so rich. God, I pray that you would give us an ability with a sanctified imagination to hear these words as if we were in the upper room on that last evening. There was tension in the air. A betrayer had been announced. A denier had been announced. Everyone was going to flee. And Jesus himself says, I am going to depart and you can't follow. Sorrow, hopelessness, despair, turmoil in the soul of the disciples. God, I pray that we would feel that. 
We've all been there in moments when we're wondering, what are you doing? Where are you? And the disciples are wondering the same thing. And God, in these four short verses, you have given us magnificent promises to cling to. So may we do that. This is not an exercise for the purpose of growing our knowledge. God, we want to live differently because of what we see in these precious verses. And we can only do that if your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. So we ask again that he would grant the precious gift of illumination to give us an understanding of these verses such that we would live differently. Teach us this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In these four verses, there are four foundations for our peace, our joy, and our faith. One per verse. We're going to go through them slowly but surely. And we will see four different foundations for the peace that we can have in Christ, the joy that we should have in Christ, and for our faith as a whole. The first is Jesus' exaltation. So we're going to start in verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. And if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. There's joy. You would have rejoiced because I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. The first foundation that we see for our peace, our joy, and our faith is Jesus' exaltation. Jesus says, I'm going away and I already told you I'm going to come back. So Your sorrow really is unnecessary, disciples, because my leaving is just temporary. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. And he says something that's a a rebuke. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. If you don't, you're struggling to love me. Now, what, what is Jesus saying? What about the disciples in these moments is not loving? How are the disciples not loving Jesus? Well, the truest and purest love is completely selfless. Completely selfless. And it's selfless. And it's always seeking the joy of the one loved. So what Jesus is saying is, you're struggling to love me completely because you're still focusing on yourself. You're focusing on what you are about to lose instead of what I am about to gain. If you really love me, if you truly, to the bottom level of your soul, loved me, you would be selfless in this moment. Instead of saying, woe is me because our Savior is leaving and I want him and I don't want to lose him. You would be saying, what is he gaining as he leaves? Whatever he's gaining, Jesus says, is a foundation for our joy. So what is he gaining? He says specifically in verse 28, I go to the Father. You would have rejoiced. You would have joy. The foundation of your joy would be in the fact that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Jesus is saying, I'm closing in on the fullness of intimacy with my Father, my greatest joy. I've been separated to a certain degree from Him as I've gone down to earth in the incarnation. And I'm I'm ready to go back. I'm ready to be with Him in heaven. But he says this somewhat confusing statement, the Father is greater than I. My wife last week said, did you get to that verse? Because if you did, I totally missed the explanation of that verse. 
And I said, I haven't gotten there yet. We only got to verse 27, so it's okay. So I'm getting to this now. What does it mean that the Father is greater than Jesus? This is a verse that many cults turn to to say that the Father alone is God and Jesus is a lesser God, a little g God, but he's not fully God. Is that what Jesus is saying? First of all, I don't think that the Bible would allow for that. Just write three verses down. John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. So, the Word, and nobody has any doubts as to who the Word is in John 1, 1. It is Jesus. There's no disagreements on that. Jesus is God. The Word is God. Also, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians 2, 9. Paul says, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 100% human in bodily form. 100% God. All the fullness of what it means to be God dwells in Jesus in a body. So John 1, 1, Colossians 2, 9, and Philippians 2, 6. These three verses are verses that I would always take anybody to who would say, wait, I don't think that Jesus is fully God. John 1, 1 says he's fully God. Colossians 2.9 says he's fully God. Philippians 2.6 says he's fully God. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality, that Greek word, isos, where we get isosceles triangle. Equal in its dimensions. Exact representation. Equal in every way. Jesus was equal to God. He is equal to God. So when Jesus says here, the Father is greater than I... Scripture would not allow for him to be saying that he is somehow a lesser God. Jesus' own words would not allow for that. Just turn back to verse 9 of chapter 14. Verse 9, Jesus said to Philip, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So everything that it means to be God, you can see perfectly clearly in me. Or turn to chapter 17, verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. He's speaking to his father, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So I had glory, the exact same glory that you had, I had in heaven before anything was made. That's what it means to be God, to be pre-existent before anything was created. So Jesus himself would not allow for Verse 28 of chapter 14 to mean that he is somehow a lesser God. So the question is, what is he saying? The Father is greater than I. Not in essence or nature. Clearly not. I would give you two ways in which the Father is greater than Jesus. And I believe this is what Jesus is meaning. Number one, because of the incarnation. And number two, because of the submission of the Son to the Father. Because of the incarnation, Jesus is God, but he's also fully human. He's taken a body to himself. This is Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself, not only by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by emptying himself of what? He didn't empty himself of any of his deity. He's fully God. He emptied himself, Paul says specifically, by taking humanity to himself. By bringing humanity onto himself, this is one way in which the Father is greater than Jesus because the Father is still spirit and has no body. He's not confined. Jesus is confined by his 
humility to come down and become human. His submission, therefore, because of Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself, again, not of deity. He never ceased to be 100% God. What he emptied himself of, by taking humanity and limitations of humanity to himself, he emptied himself of the independent exercising of his divine attributes. Was God the Son, when he was on the earth in a human body, was he omnipresent? Yes and no. Was he everywhere at one time? Well, yes, because that's what it means to be God. He had to be that. But he surrendered the independent use of that to his father and submitted himself under his father to say, hey, when you want me to use that, let me know and I'll do that. Remember John chapter 2. Jesus is at the wedding at Cana and Mary comes and says, uh, we've got a problem. Wine's run out. Can you do something about it? And he says, my time hasn't come. Somewhere in that moment, he says, Father, can I do something about this? I know I can work the miracle through the power of the Spirit if you would allow me to do that. Am I allowed to do it? Father says, no, not yet. And he says, my time hasn't come yet. And then somewhere after there, the father says, okay, now's the time. Now's the time. And he's able to do the work by the power of the Spirit. But he had to submit himself in every, every way, shape, or form to the father. So the father is greater because he has not been incarnated, if you will, in a body. And he's not having to submit himself and surrendering the independent use of his divine attributes. But here Jesus says, in just a few hours, my humiliation will be over. My humiliation will be over. Um, I will be back in heaven, glorified, and it will be all over. Jesus is fully God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully God. So these words do not mean he is somehow a lesser God. He is equal to God. He is God, very God. But in his incarnation and through his submission, he says, the Father is greater than I, but I'm going back to him. And all of this humiliation will end. I'm about to complete my work. I'm about to be glorified. What we read in Philippians chapter 2, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every tongue would confess, every knee would bow, because Jesus Christ is Lord. This is happening. And so Jesus says, if you only knew, if you weren't looking so selfishly internally at what you're losing, but looking at what I'm gaining, you would have joy. The foundation of your joy would be my exaltation. The reality here is in verse 27, we too often focus on our own sorrows, on what we are losing instead of what God the Father is doing through those sorrows. Instead of looking at the Master's joy and His glory being seen through our circumstances, we just kind of get focused on what's painful and what we're losing. That's why James 1 says, if you consider it joy in the midst of the trials, you can do that by seeing that it's adding something to you. It's adding perseverance. So often we look at trials as something's being taken away. I'm losing Jesus. He was my teacher and he's going away. But James says we can consider it all joy because those trials are giving us something. They're producing something in our lives. Yes, something is being taken away. That's why it hurts. That's why it's a trial. But 
No pain that we ever go through if we are in Christ is ever wasted. God is working in those painful moments and adding to us things that we couldn't possibly comprehend. So Jesus said, if only you knew the glory that I'm about to experience by being exalted. Now in heaven, as we sang, exalted high. That's where I'm going, and that's the foundation of your joy. By the way, this is the foundation. There's a, there's a certain truth to the extent for those in Christ as we pass away. This is true of us. We are going to be home. And there's glory to be understood as we go absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Jesus says, this is my homecoming. Rejoice with me. Rejoice for me. And rejoice in me. So the first foundation for our peace, our joy, and our Faith is the exaltation of Jesus. The second foundation is Jesus' trustworthiness. The trustworthiness of our Savior. This is in verse 29. So he says, I'm leaving, I'm going back, and you would have rejoiced if you would have loved me fully and been selfless instead of selfish. You would have rejoiced. Verse 29. Now I'm telling you these things before they happen so that when they happen, you may believe. This is the foundation for our trust, our belief, our faith. Jesus' own trustworthiness. What is about to happen will confirm what he has said. This is amazing. I'm telling you beforehand so that you will believe. This is the same that was stated in chapter 13, verse 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. I want you to believe that I am God. So I'm telling you, I'm predicting the future so that when it happens, you go, man, that guy knew the future. That's amazing. This guy knew the future. He has to be God. He says the same thing in chapter 16, verse 4. Chapter 16, verse 4. These things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm telling you them so that when I leave, you remember when they happen. Oh, he predicted the future for us. He said the same thing in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back. Everybody thought, you're you're talking about the the actual temple and the disciples remember. John tells us when he was raised from the dead, they remembered those words. Oh, he was talking about his own physical body. He says the same thing in John chapter 12, verse 16. All of these truths validate the deity of Jesus because he's predicting the future. Who is in charge If the future is known to Jesus, who is in charge if he has a hotline on what's going to happen in the future? He owns the future. He's in charge of the future. We don't know what's going on when we're in the moment. We're confused. There's chaos. We are at our wits end. We don't know what's happening. But we throw ourselves at the trustworthiness of Jesus. He knows. He's working. He has a plan. And that is the foundation of our peace, our joy, and our trust. He said he was going to die on the cross, and he did. He said he would be handed over by his own people, the Jewish people, to the Gentiles, and he was. He said in three days he would rise from the dead, and he did. He said that he would send his Holy Spirit once he ascended into heaven, and he did. He said he's coming back, and he hasn't yet. But since he's gotten every other prophecy right, and every other prediction that he has made has come true, he's coming back. We know that he's coming back. This is the foundation for our confidence. Jesus' exaltation shows us 
he is fully God and I'm rejoicing in the fact that his work is finally done. Love's redeeming work is done. Alleluia. And then his trustworthiness that he holds the future. He knows the end from the beginning. He's able to prophesy and predict and tell you exactly what's going to happen, the way it's going to happen. I'm never going to trust my own uh, rational abilities. I'm trusting in the trustworthiness of the God who knows and who is working and who is planning. So, Jesus' exaltation, Jesus' trustworthiness, and number three, Jesus' holiness. Jesus' holiness is a grounds, it's a foundation for our peace, our joy, and our faith. Jesus' holiness. This is in verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, because the ruler of the world is coming. That's Satan. But he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. So Satan is the ruler of the world. He has entered Judas. And Satan and Judas are coming back to betray Jesus. They're going to take him. They're going to kill him. And it would be easy to think that all that's happening, Jesus' death that's going to happen in just a matter of hours, is because of the ruler of this world. But Jesus says here, that is not the ultimate reason why I'm going to the cross. Satan is not decisive. That's why Jesus says he has no claim on me. He has nothing in me, literally nothing in me to accuse me of. There's nothing that he can charge me with. There's no sin, there's no sinful act, there's no sinful thought, there's no sinful attitude or feeling. Satan has no power over a sinless man. Can't accuse him of anything. This is the power, the hour of the, the power of darkness. Luke chapter 22, verse 53. This is the hour that darkness has to do whatever darkness wants to do. But ultimately, there is nothing that Satan can do to Jesus because of Jesus' own sin. Therefore, there's nothing that Satan can do to lay a hold of Jesus and gain an advantage over him. Oh, Satan will definitely bruise the heel of our Savior. But Genesis 3.15 is going to come true. At that exact moment, Jesus is going to crush his head. Satan cannot hold on to Jesus. The grave can't hold him. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So Jesus says, don't be afraid, disciples. I'm about to be murdered, but it's not decisively because of what Satan is doing. Oh, he's the ruler of this world, but it's not decisively because of what he's doing. It's because of what the Father has planned that I would obey, that I would live out. It's not because he has anything in me. He has no claim on me. This is Jesus' holiness that is a grounds for our peace. It's a grounds for our confidence. It's a grounds for our faith. But just think about the beauty of the doctrine of union with Christ. If you have died to your sins, you have been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer you who live, but Jesus who lives in you. You are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus says, Satan has no claim on me, he has nothing in me to accuse me of, guess what? If you are in Christ, you can say the exact same thing. Satan has nothing that he can accuse me of. He has nothing in me. My sin has been done away with once and for all at the cross. This is the beauty of justification. I am declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. Of course this is going to bring joy. No condemnation. Now I dread. Why? Because Romans 8 verse 1 says that those who are in Christ have no condemnation to fear whatsoever. 
This is the grounds of our trust, the grounds of our confident assurance. Jesus' holiness is the grounds of the peace that the disciples should have had in the upper room. What's happening looks like it's evil is winning the day, but it's not. It's not. And that leads us to number four in verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. This is Jesus' sovereign Love. Jesus' sovereign love. So we have Jesus' exaltation, Jesus' trustworthiness, his holiness, and his sovereign love. The final ground here in these verses for our peace, joy, and faith. So Jesus says, yes, the hour of darkness is coming, and the power of darkness, the prince, the ruler of this world, is going to murder me. But he tells the disciples, I want you to know that Satan isn't the ultimate reason. It's not at the bottom. At the bottom, at the foundation of the cross, is not evil winning. The bottom foundation is obedience to the Father. The bottom foundation is sovereign love. But so that the world may know that I love the Father. So yes, the rule of this world is coming, but he is not decisive in this. The Father is decisive in this, and I want everybody to know that I love the Father, so I'm going to obey the Father's command to go, to die, and to be raised. This is not happening because of some demonic coercion. This is happening because of divine compliance. Satan is not the ultimate explanation for the cross. Obedience is the ultimate explanation for the cross. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to do exactly as the Father commanded me. It's interesting to note, in verse 31, Jesus says, I love the Father. There are many places in the New Testament where it says that Jesus submits to the Father, he obeys the Father. But there's only one place where it explicitly says, Jesus loves the Father, where Jesus himself uses the words, I love the Father. And it's right here. Jesus already said, if you love me, you're going to do what I've told you to do. The truest test of love is obedience. And so Jesus says, my obedience is proving my love. Love is ruling the night, not Satan. This brings immense peace. In the midst of the darkest moments of your life, love is ruling in those moments. The love of God, the sovereign love of God to chase you down, to find you. In the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23 says, I won't fear because you're with me. Why? How do we know that he's with me? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, will hunt me down, will pursue me all the days of my life. I know that that's a reality. So therefore, God's sovereign love is peace in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. The deepest roots of our foundation... Uh, The deepest foundation for our salvation is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father and His obedience to the Father. We're going to talk about this much more in chapter 17, but for our time this morning, you need to know that Jesus' sovereign love is the foundation for our joy, our peace, our faith, and our trust. He says, I'm doing exactly what the Father has commanded. Therefore, We know that if in history's darkest hour, it was true that Satan didn't have the upper hand. That's what Jesus is trying to say. It looks like Satan's going to win the day, but he doesn't have the upper hand. If in history's darkest hour, it was true that Satan didn't have the upper hand, but God did, then that's also true in your darkest hour. In your darkest hour, it might look like Satan has the upper hand, but God has the upper hand. 
And God's love is going to win the day. Darkness is not in charge ultimately. Satan is not in charge ultimately. God's love is in charge ultimately. So our joy, our peace, it's not the joy that the world gives. It's not peace that the world gives, as Jesus said in verse 27, not as the world gives you. It's in Jesus. It says supernatural peace, supernatural joy, supernatural faith. How did Jesus have joy? He had total confidence in his belief in what the Father would accomplish. He trusted the Father. He submitted himself to the Father and he said, I trust him. And his total confidence in the Father can be our total confidence in what God is doing. Jesus was full of joy even in the midst of the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Yes, the cross was a despicable thing. It was a darkness and it was an evil. But through it, Jesus was able to have joy. And he was able to have peace that surpasses all understanding, all comprehension. And he's giving us that peace as well. Such that joy, our joy, can be just like Christ's joy in a settled confidence in theological truth, grounded in the reality of the character of our God. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can do that. We can be distressed the way that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and be able to say, get up, let's go from here, we're moving on. God's in control, not the power of darkness. So, Jesus' exaltation... Jesus' trustworthiness, his holiness, and his sovereign love are the grounds, the foundation for our joy, our peace, and our faith. The verse ends in verse 31 by Jesus saying, get up, let's go from here. Why does Jesus say that? They're in the upper room. Judas had already left, and Judas had gone to get the guards to come arrest Jesus. Remember, this was the whole point in the Passion Week of the Silent Wednesday, right? Silent Wednesday, Judas is planning and Jesus is planning. Jesus is planning where the upper room is going to be, where the Passover is going to be held. And he's kept that a secret from every one of his disciples. Why? Because if Judas had known where the upper room was going to be, he would have taken all the guards to the upper room. And as Jesus opens the door, surprise, the guards are there. They take him. And we can't take communion. We don't have the Lord's Supper. We don't get to enjoy the Passover. We have none of these five chapters. No upper room discourse. So Jesus keeps it secret. He keeps the location secret. Remember, this is the whole reason of the man with the pitcher of water on his head. Follow him. Peter and, and John go into the city to figure that out. I'm sure Judas had said, please let me go. I want to go. I want to figure out where it is. I'll help. And Jesus says, no, you can't go. So the very first time that Judas finally figures out where the Passover is going to be held is when they're actually taking Passover. And that's why Jesus turns to Judas in the middle of the Passover, right before communion is instituted, and says, what you have to do, go do quickly. Judas leaves to go get the guards. And at that moment, Jesus is on the clock and he finishes what he says and he says, get up, let's go. So that when he leaves, Judas comes back to an empty room. It's actually not quite empty. You guys know at the end of Mark chapter 14, we have a a streaker in the Bible. Remember that? The the guy that's in the Garden of Gethsemane that just has a bed sheet around him and a soldier steps on the bed sheet and he runs away naked. Who is that person? Well, most people would say that that's Mark. Um, Mark is not one of the disciples. He's younger. And most people would say that Jesus took 
the Passover Seder in the room, the guest house of Mark's mom. And so Mark gets to hang out with his mom, with the Passover Seder, with the disciples and with Jesus. He sees something's different about this night. I don't know what it is. And Mark's mom probably says, okay, Mark, it's time for you to go to bed. And Jesus says a a bunch of what he's saying in the upper room discourse and then says, let's get up, let's go. Mark's asleep and he's awoken by a pounding on the door. Let us in. And Judas opens the door and Mark gets up and and Mark's mom goes to the door. What's going on? Who are you seeking? I'm, I'm seeking Jesus. He was here just a couple minutes ago. Where is he? I don't know where he is. And as Judas says, I think I might have an idea where he is. He usually hangs out in the garden and goes, Emily, let's go there. I think Mark looks out the window. Where are they going? And wraps a bedsheet around him and follows at a distance. Jesus had more things that he had to get done. Imagine if Jesus had not said, get up, let's get out of here, before Judas comes back. If Judas had arrested Jesus, if all the guards had come and taken him in the upper room, we would not have had Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. We wouldn't have had him crying out, if it's possible, remove this cup, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus knows that we need those words. And so he says, Judas is going to be here quickly. Get up, let's go from here. And they're going to leave. They're going to go down the Kidron Valley. They're going to come back up on the other side of the Mount of Olives and they're going to stay at the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is going to arrive at the upper room, find that it's empty, and he's going to say, my guess is that he's at a place he usually likes to hang out with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's go there. It's very interesting to note that in verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus starts speaking of the true vine and The father being the the vine dresser. Josephus tells us that during the Passover, the temple mount would have been covered, the walls would have been covered with vines, with grape vines flowing, and all of all of these uh, olive branches and grape vines flowing on the temple mount wall. And you have to walk right past that wall if you're going to go down into the Kidron Valley and come up over to the Mount of Olives. So my guess is that as Jesus leaves, they pack their stuff up, put on their cloaks, leave the upper room, and as they're walking, the path that's going to lead them to the Garden of Gethsemane, on their left would be the Temple Mount. And as they see these vines of grapes, Jesus would say, you see the vines? I, I am that vine. And he connects it in a beautiful way like a parable. I am that vine. So he says, get up, let's go from here. Mark tells us the very last thing that they did. Mark chapter 14, verse 26, before they left, they sang a hymn. Have you ever sung a song in the middle of a very powerful moment? And then you don't sing that song for a while, and then the next time you sing that song, the memories of that moment flood back. Songs are powerful. Imagine the disciples. They sang a hymn. We don't know exactly what hymn that was. But imagine the very next time the disciples sung that hymn. Maybe it was a year later during Passover again. And they sang a song. And they remember. Oh, this is when Jesus said, get up, let's go. We saw him in distress, but also in peace at the same time. How that works, we don't know. But we've been given the Spirit. And now we have a peace that passes all understanding. There are so many songs that we sing that change us even while we are singing them. 
So they sing a song. They leave. They close the door to the upper room and make their way to the garden. As we close chapter 14, we see four foundations for our peace, our joy, and our trust. Number one, the exaltation of Jesus paves the way for our own exaltation, our own glorification. We too, one day, will be home because Jesus is the author and the perfecter who paved the way for us to be home. Because he died and because he has risen, he holds the keys of death. And therefore, death has no sting, has no power over us. So we can have peace, joy, and faith in the midst of the hardest moments. Jesus' trustworthiness is the anchor in our storms. He is the ballast in our boat. We have no idea what's going on. Just like Job, we have no idea what's happening. But God knows. God is working. This is Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that he's causing all things to work together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He knows the end. He knows your end and he's working you to that end. He he knows the end from the beginning. He has all knowledge. I have no knowledge. And so in the midst of my trials, I just say, God, I know what you're doing as revealed to me in Scripture. You're working for my good, and you know the rest. I don't need to know anymore. We can have faith. We can have peace in the midst of hard times. We can have joy because we know God's working for our joy and not wasting a moment of our pain. We can have faith because we can trust the one who knows the end from the beginning. Jesus Jesus' holiness is the grounds for our acceptance before the Father. We wear his righteousness so that no charge can stand against us, just as no charge could stand against him. This is the basis of our peace with God. This is the basis of uh, condemnation-less joy before our amazing Savior. And his sovereign love is the grounds for our peace, our joy, and our faith. This is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? He's working for our good. And because of Jesus' obedience to the Father, we know that the Father is for us and not against us. So to that end, I think as, as they sang a hymn and then they got up and they left, I think we would do well to sing a couple hymns that would highlight these aspects. The exaltation of our Savior, that love's redeeming work is done. He fought the fight and the battle's over. And therefore we know that our battle is secure as well. We can trust His trustworthiness. We can cling to the hope that He knows the end from the beginning. We can trust His holiness. And we can savor and and enjoy and be satisfied in His holiness that's working even now on our behalf to allow us access into the throne room. And we cling to his sovereign love, the love that justifies, the love that sanctifies, and the love that will bring us safely home. God, thank you so much for your amazing word. Thank you for John recording these words that your spirit would um, reveal them as he was promised to do, to teach all things. Thank you that we have the promises given to us of the peace, the joy, and the faith that we can have because of what Jesus has done. We cling to him now and we want to enjoy. We want to savor him. We want to find our joy, not in circumstances. We want to find our joy in what Jesus has done and all that he promises to be for us. Help us to do that even now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.